Well, Isaiah, you have named the brokenness with a plain, unvarnished tongue. In your bold speech, oxen and donkeys have higher esteem in the eyes of God than do the people of Israel. You've taken an entire chapter of the good book just to groan and despair at the weak and sickened state of your people. It must have been a wretched and dismal time in your day, Isaiah, for even the sight of people flocking to the temple to offer sacrifices, even just a glimpse of your people raising their hands in worship, and God looks away in disgust. It takes a lot of chutzpah, Isaiah, to say that there is blood on the hands of your people. Hmm. What would you see, I wonder, and what would you say if your sandaled feet came walking among our properly peopled pews? Could we abide the venom on your tongue? Your world, Isaiah, reminds us of our own, a world where violence, deceit, and greed are found in the high places, in the holy places, embedded in the patterns that we live by. Yet even in your time, a time that sounds so much like our time, your sharp tongue mellows. And the hope beating deep in your heart comes pouring out with an amazing vision and longing. Swords are pounded into plowshares, Weapons that pierce flesh are turned into tools that nurture life. Training centers for war and combat are turned into schools that teach peace. Tell me, Isaiah, what kind of eyes do you have mired in the wretched muck of a world staggering under the weight of its own sin? How can you still see the incredible wonder and mystery of God here with us. Tell me, Isaiah, what kind of arms do you have? How can you stretch them to touch both the brokenness and the beauty? Tell me, Isaiah, what kind of heart do you have? How can it hold people in its loving embrace who so willingly and willfully ignore the ways of God. You have named our brokenness with a plain, unvarnished tongue, and you have dazzled our imagination with a picture of God's transforming presence. Oh, the mystery. God with us. God with us today midst all of our brokenness. Please, let it be so. God Will Enter Into Your Night by Carol Hauslander God will enter into your night as the ray of the sun enters into the dark, hard earth, driving right down to the roots of the tree, and there, unseen, unknown, unfelt in the darkness, filling the tree with life, a sap of fire will suddenly break out 
high above that darkness into living leaf and flame. Put Your Ear to the Ground by Domelder Camara. Put your ear to the ground and listen. Hurried, worried footsteps, bitterness, rebellion. Hope hasn't yet begun. Listen again. Put out feelers. The Lord is there. He is far less likely to abandon us in hardship than in times of ease. Despite the desire for peace and harmony found deep within the human heart, we live in a world plagued with power structures that privilege a few at the cost of many, structures that oppress, isolate, and consume. I grew up in Nairobi, Kenya, in a world divided by those who have and have not, between white and black. We live in a divided world here as well, but in Kenya the contrasts were stark, unrelenting and raw. Several experiences early on showed me that while all human life should be equally valued, it just wasn't that way. And while every person deserves to have enough food to eat and adequate shelter, this just wasn't the reality. I spent years wondering how a loving God can exist and yet let some people fall through the cracks in this way. The brutality I witnessed left a burn in me for some kind of justice. I became aware that my presence as a white person was linked to a legacy that has created so much suffering, the scars of colonialism that still run deep and manifest in a myriad of ways throughout Kenya. I have carried grief for the people I knew and loved who were born on the underside of the oppressive systems and did not survive, and a certain kind of despair for my inability to change those dynamics. On an individual level, I have experienced the healing that can arise from personal crisis, of which I've had my share. I believe that beauty can blossom out from storms. However, it has been hard for me to believe in God's presence and any sense of God's plan in the face of systemic injustice, the kind of suffering that happens when a group of people are oppressed. Paradoxically, I can easily think of numerous occasions in Kenya and other places since then, 
where the presence of God was real to me in the midst of people who suffered from the structures of injustice. Here's the first story. When I was around 13 years old, we made a trip to Kakamega in western Kenya to visit Lena and her family. We had gotten to know Lena at Roslyn Academy, Academy where we all lived, and she worked in our house part-time. But like many folks, her real home was out in the village, in the beautiful countryside of western Kenya. Because of the scarcity of resources, they were forced to move near Nairobi in order to find work, dividing their lives between country and city. I fell in love with the village of Kakamega, with the winding footpaths, the shambas, gardens, which patterned the landscape like a living quilt, the family cow tied up in the yard, the earthen homes, the sounds of people working with metal and wood, the absence of roads and cars. Lena fed us royally while we were there, ugali, stews, kumawiki, githeri, japatis. We ate until we were stuffed. She made sure we were fed before her own family was fed. And later, when I came back to visit as an 18-year-old, after being away from Kenya for three years, I was again fed royally. This time, I discovered that there had been a severe drought in the area, and Lena's family had been surviving with barely any food, going for days at a time only drinking tea, chai. In the midst of that, they had prepared and saved and had fed us without reserve. It can be baffling to know how to respond to such extreme generosity. I felt almost ashamed when I realized this. And in some ways, I feel that we were experiencing privilege that wasn't fair. We were being treated as royalty in part because we were white. Regardless, I was and still am in awe of the generosity that was shown to us through this friendship. I still wonder how it is possible to be this generous. It somehow changed me. I met God in the mystery of this generosity. The other story is about Lena as well. Lena had six children, some of whom I played with frequently. I felt especially honored when she named her youngest child Betty Francis. As a toddler, she'd come over to our house looking for candy. Betty Francis barely had a chance to begin her life before she lost it to malaria. Immediately after her death, people from Lena's church showed up to drum and sing. The drumming and singing went on for a week through day and night. Meanwhile, different folks came and went. I went over to visit and to be with them. When Lena first saw me, it sent another wave of grief through her, and she fell to the floor wailing and calling out my name and the name of her child. I was kind of stunned, a little scared, and in awe. I had never seen this level of emotional expression before or grief. After a week of mourning, they took Betty Francis's small body back to Kakamega for burial and the funeral. I saw Lena on the driveway between our house and hers when she returned. We stopped and greeted each other. She told me, it is okay. I am at peace. It is God's will. I searched her face for the cover-up for the I'm saying one thing but feeling another look that I was good at detecting. But she was transparent, her face completely open and peaceful. I could barely comprehend what I was seeing. That moment changed me. I met God in the mystery of her peace and the grace of where her grief had brought her. That moment has stayed with me my whole life. 
From that I learned that God's grace can be present through tragedy and that through deep expression of one's emotions, there can be a landing place, a place of peace. I came to believe that the mystery of God can appear within the experience of letting what is terrible rip through and that afterwards it is possible to come out on the other side. And I learned that the drum and song can carry this mystery of grace and create a space for transformation. This is one of the beginning sparks for the work I do now with music as a tool for healing and transformation. These stories are small windows into what has shaped my belief that God is within the darkness, is within the hard times. As a person passionate about working for justice, it is significant for me to remember that God is already present in the world I so badly want to change. I have seen the face of God in moments of joy and peace in the vitality of people who are oppressed. While the systems of oppression are wrong and we need to ignite our creativity and use our resources to shift things as much as possible, I am finding that the work I do is more about being present with rather than saving. I am not a savior, and I become paralyzed if I try to carry the weight of everything. I'm continually looking for that balancing point. How do I take responsibility for my privilege in a life-giving way? How does one hold on to faith when facing the harsh realities of injustice? I love the imagery in the second chapter of Isaiah about beating swords into plowshares, studying war no more. But I don't know if I believe any society or culture would, would or could actually transform to that point. And yet, how can I work for peace if I don't believe it's possible? I do believe that acts of love, kindness, and generosity can break through the complex webs of injustice. And for a moment, an encounter, an exchange can defy all the isms and fear between us. Perhaps that is the face of God, ever present in the potential of the human heart to rise above the things that separate and oppress. And yet, I want the whole system to change. I want an end to economic injustice, sexism, racism, homophobia. I want the wounds of colonialism to be healed. For this, I have no answer. I continue to pray, live, I continue to pray to live well with the questions. The word by Julia Esquivel from her book, Threatened with Resurrection. The word for our sake became poverty clothed as the poor who live off the refuse heap. The word for our sake became a sob a thousand times stifled in the immobile mouth of the child who died from hunger. The word for our sake became danger in the anguish of the mother who worries about her child growing into adulthood. The word cut us deeply in that place of shame, the painful reality of the poor. The word blew its spirit over the dried bones of the churches, guardians of silence. The word awoke us from the lethargy which has robbed us of our hope. The word became a path in the jungle, a decision on the farm, love in women, unity among workers, 
and a star for those few who can inspire dreams. The word became light. The word became history. The word became conflict. The word became indomitable spirit and sowed its seeds upon the mountain, near the river, and in the valley. And those of goodwill heard the angels sing. Tired knees were strengthened. Trembling hands were stilled. And the people who wandered in darkness saw the light. The word became the seed of justice, and we conceived peace. The word made justice to reign, and peace came forth from the furrows in the land. And we saw its glory in the eyes of the poor, transformed into real men and women. And those who saw the star opened up for us the path we now follow. Well, Isaiah, your dazzling vision of swords turned into plowshares has leaped across the millennia. This vision now stands as a magnificent bronze statue at the United Nations along the East River in New York. But it was early this fall outside a warehouse in northeast Philadelphia that I saw this vision coming to life in breathtaking fashion. For you see, Isaiah, in the time and place where we live, we too have blood on our hands. Just say the names. Nickel Mines, New Haven, Aurora, Blacksburg, Columbine. And we can all feel the chills, feel the chills go up our spines. These are places of mass killings. And in our time, Isaiah, they have become common. And then there is the daily carnage, Isaiah, that barely arouses our interests. The shootings on the street, the domestic violence, the suicides, and the wars, Isaiah. We have studied war, practiced it on our computers, built it in our factories, embedded it in our politics, paid for it with our taxes, and we visit it daily on people in other lands. And now it has come to us. We live with terror. We live with brokenness, and and like you, we must have the courage to name it. But just like in your day, Isaiah, this vision of turning swords into plowshares, this, this mystery of God with us in our darkness, has also surprised and moved us. And it is of God stirring in our darkness that I want to speak of, Isaiah, Would you recognize this story, Isaiah? It so happens that Steve Martin and his dad, Fred, uh, do you know them, Isaiah? No? Oh, okay. Just thought maybe you would. Uh, They were two Mennonites from Colorado Springs. They became gripped with this idea. Why not take guns off the street and pound them into garden tools? For your vision, Isaiah, written in the book we love, was also written on their hearts. And they joined hands with others, assembled some blacksmithing tools, and set forth to see what would happen. They did it first in Colorado. Their first customer was a lawyer 
named Mike Warren, who had an AK-47 assault rifle. Not something you would know about, Isaiah, but it was a deadly weapon. Mike Warren had bought the weapon after 9-11, a dreadful, dreadful day of destruction on our land. He bought the AK-47 for protection. But after years of living with fear and, and, as he put it, protecting his fishing hole from terrorists, he began to think he really didn't want this weapon any longer. And after the slaughter of the innocents at Newtown, Connecticut, he was done. Rather than sell the gun and become an armed trader himself, Warren brought it to Steve and Fred, who cut it, fashioned it into garden tools to grow food and nurture life. Early this fall, Steve and Fred brought their operation to Philadelphia for a day. And there it happened all over again, this time with a handgun. It was dramatic, Isaiah, what with all the fiery metal being pounded on a heavy anvil and the hot sparks hissing and flying. It was dramatic, Isaiah, to see the barrel of a gun being transformed before our eyes into a garden tool. But the real drama, the real transformation was of a deeper kind involving the human heart. There were testimonies, Isaiah, stories of people whose lives had been shattered by the violence, mothers and fathers who had lost their young adult sons to the spirit of violence that so grips our time. They spoke of their sorrow, their anguish, and of their undying love for their child. And like your vision of old, Isaiah, where people of all nations, many peoples come streaming to the house of the Lord, the mothers and fathers that day who told their stories represented people of different religions and different races. And they spoke of our common humanity, of our one blood, our common hope for peace. I wonder, Isaiah, was this warehouse being transformed into the Lord's house? And then, after pouring out their hearts, each in turn walked to that anvil, picked up the sledgehammer, and pounded on the hot metal of the gun barrel to fashion it into a tool that would nurture life. And then, then Isaiah, having pounded their lament and longing into the hot metal, their hands reached out through their pain to embrace the blacksmiths, Steve and Fred. It's not something we say, see every day, Isaiah. Muslims and Christians embracing one another, people of different races, perfect strangers, clinging to one another. No, not in our day. And these were not the quick kind of embraces for politeness sake. No, something deep was stirring, Isaiah. What was it? What was it that brought these strangers together, people separated by centuries of pain and social distance? What created such a deep desire of want for oneness of heart and spirit? Is this, is this what you had in mind, Isaiah? I wonder, Isaiah, when the times are bleakness, are bleakest, when the myth of redemptive violence wrapped like a sandwich between commercials during the evening news, 
It entices us with offers of salvation, offers of security and freedom through more bombs. I wonder if this is precisely the time that we must turn our heads and look elsewhere for the embers of God's light that long to burst into flame. With the eyes of faith wide open, Isaiah, surely we will find God's light shining in unexpected places. On that day in Philadelphia, your vision, Isaiah, was not only a metaphor, a symbol, a sign. It became real. It had fire. It had breath. It was alive. It was like a dancing flame of hope, resisting the darkness, a pulsing heart beating in the face of death. I wonder in what other ways your vision longs to become alive midst the brokenness of our day. To what experiments, what creative movements, what holy acts of faith might your vision be calling us? Perhaps, Isaiah, perhaps even in our time, like yours, we can experience the mystery of God with us in the unvarnished tongue and the dazzling vision of your prophecy and the prophet blacksmiths among us. Perhaps even in our time, midst the brokenness of our world, we can learn to walk in the light of the Lord. Could this be true, Isaiah? This is Advent season. Wake up! Let us be watchful for God's light wherever we go. Amen.